Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 940. At the top of the show, David Lorla is welcomed by retired Major Leaguer Dave Parker, as well as his co-author Dave Jordan, to talk about their new book, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Parker shares stories of the many incredible players he shared the field with, such as Doc Ellis and Larry Demery and Pete Rose and Phil Garner, and how he actually could have ended up playing football instead. Meanwhile, Dave Jordan tells us more about how the book and its appropriate subtitle came to be, and the trio discuss the Dave Parker 39 Foundation and its commitment to finding a cure for Parkinson's disease. Finally, Parker gives us his very honest opinion of the best outfielders of his era. Reggie Smith had the, the strongest arm. Winfield was probably third on that list. Valentine had a strong arm but no accuracy. And one player had it all, and that was me. <laughs> I could throw with velocity. I was accurate. I released the ball in one step. I uh, had all kinds of little tricks that I used as an outfield player, and uh, I thought that I was the best out there. In the second half, Eric Longenhagen welcomes back our friend Keith Law of The Athletic. Eric and Keith begin by chatting and catching up about guitar and music and pseudoscience on social media before getting to the weird baseball scheduling and low minor league performances of 2021. The duo also talk about players they have recently changed their tunes on, including Anthony Volpe, Nick York, and Brandon Walter. Eric and Keith also debate a little about players like the Reds' Ellie De La Cruz, who are exciting but risky for a number of reasons. I would disagree on De La Cruz. You know, you said there are a lot of Dominican kids like this. And Mm -hmm. from a tools and body projection standpoint, no. There are not a lot of other guys like this. Okay, that's fair. But there are definitely a lot of guys over the course of, you know, the a little over half a decade I've been doing this as my full-time job and the 13 years I've been in baseball in some capacity who were this exciting and then still ended up busting. Mm Mm-hmm. But before we get to these segments, I must remind you to consider checking out the Fangraphs.com shop. We not only offer merch, but that is where you can score a Fangraphs ad-free membership, the absolute best way to not only browse the website, but also support your favorite baseball analytics friends and help us do everything we do. Thank you so much. We couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests are Dave Parker, one of the best and certainly most exciting players in the 1970s and 1980s, and Dave Jordan, the co-author of Parker's new autobiography, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. Before we talk about the book and Dave Parker's career, I want to ask by inquiring to Dave as to to your health. You you turned 70 earlier this summer. And no, I don't know where those years go either. But you've had Parkinson's disease for, for quite a while. You know, how are you feeling these days? I feel pretty good. I have good days and bad days, but you know, that's life. But I'm doing well. Are you feeling good today? Yeah, I feel pretty good today. I'm with Dave. We've covered a lot of ground, met a lot of people, and talked baseball and about the book. So we had a productive day. Yeah, you probably can't cover quite as much uh, ground in the outfield as you once did. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I had somebody running for me. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's a lot of pinch runners back in your day. Yeah, and I should mention, for those of you who would like to help uh, defeat Parkinson's disease, the Dave Parker 39 Foundation is a nonprofit you know, that focuses on finding a cure. So we will include a link to that on our show page. Dave Jordan, let's, let's start with you. How did this book project come about? And uh, I want to ask, who gets credit for coming up with the spot-on subtitle? Oh, well, basically, uh, Colin Greer manages Pass Pros, an autograph site that basically uh, manages and coordinates the, the autograph processes and, and the, uh, the admin for a number of retired ballplayers. And he, he, he put that together. He founded that with Ellis Valentine, uh, of which Parker was, was among the group. And uh, Colin's a good friend of mine. He had read uh, Fastball John, the, uh, the book I'd written with uh, Johnny D'Aquisto, and he just absolutely adored it. And um, he had heard from Parker in, in, their, in their conversations that Dave was having an issue getting a book off the ground. And Colin basically told him, or at least he told me, he told him that, you know, look, I got the guy for you. Nobody knows who this guy is, but he's the guy who's going to get it done. And, you know, after a couple of conversations I had with Parker and, you know, we went back and forth on a couple of things. And uh, basically, you know, we started we started and, and we got the thing rolling. Now, we had a couple other pieces that we had worked on beforehand and uh, which we can talk about a little later. But basically, uh, Colin Greer uh, brought the two of us together. And as for the subtitle, I will say, since, uh, you know, I, I love fan graphs and I want them to have the whole story. I had originally, you know, talking with Parker, the original subtitle was supposed to be Cobra, Dave Parker and the Boys at the Peak of Black Baseball. And that was one we were working with for a while. And um, what Nebraska had come up with, they wanted to emphasize the brotherhood. They understood what Parker was trying to do with the book. And they wanted to emphasize the brotherhood aspect of the and the relationships that really are, you know, just underlined throughout the whole uh, narrative. So they came up with a life of baseball and brotherhood, which I think works really well. And with brotherhood in mind, Dave Parker, you devote a lot of time covering former teammates, not just in the big leagues, but also in the minors. And also a man named Bill Flowers, who you grew up with, who I think he was almost like a brother to you. You know, what what can you tell us about Bill Flowers? Bill was a, a great athlete, high school and professional he was just caught in the wrong place at the wrong time because he should have been in the big league. But he was uh, victimized by supply and demand, and uh, that kind of stopped him from making it to the major league. Jumping back, Dave Parker, you and uh, Bill Flowers starred in the football field together in high school. Had you not suffered a knee injury in high school, what are the chances that you'd have gone on to be a running back and not a right fielder? Very good, because I love football. And uh, I was headed football's way. I had taken care of playing my sophomore year, my junior year. And uh, my senior year, I was all excited because I was impressing people and people were making inquiries about me. And I got hurt in the very first game. And I tore my knee up. It was torn in five different places, my cartilage, on my left knee. And uh, that changed my life. I couldn't play football, not with injuries such as I had. So I chose my second sport, was uh, baseball. I didn't miss out on being with my friends because they played right along with me. Every sport that I went to, they, they went to too. So uh, I, uh, my Parkinson acting up, but uh, I went on and 
chose my second sport and ended up playing baseball. Yeah, and with uh, with football in mind, I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but what are your rooting interests when the Bengals play the Steelers? Well, I got to go with the Bengals, but the Steelers were, were my team for a long time. I think the Steelers, I'm a little too physical for the Bengals. Yeah, I think the uh, Steelers are a uh, little bit better football team than than the Bengals right now, than your hometown team. Yeah, Dave Jordan, I learned a lot about Dave Parker, Parkway to, to a lot of his teammates while I was reading the book. What stands out to you in regard to what you learned working with him on this project? His generosity, both in spirit and in action, was rather significant and has been rather significant. And I also learned that so many other play. I, I learned what people know about him, and and you, when you 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 go and and you work on some kind of project, and you try to um, you try to get other people involved, and sometimes you get a reflection of the subject by the lack of responsiveness you get from certain people. As you saw in the acknowledgments, we had at least seventy-five players, managers, coaches, agents, executives, high school teammates. Everybody wanted to be a part of this project. Everybody wanted to participate. Everybody wanted to help with the fact checking and make sure, making sure that we got the stories right, or at least hearing their side of the story. And um, you know, everybody wanted to be part a part of it. And so much of that is just who Dave is, and it really spoke about the uh, the brotherhood again, the brotherhood and the relationships aspect of the book. And relationships mean so much in this book, both with things that you see out front, how Parker deals with a, a teammate whose career is all but over. And um, and how he deals with young rookies, and and how um, the veterans dealt with him as a rookie, and also how things happen in Major League Baseball, and 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 the, the kind of undercover stuff that was going on with the strike in '85, and how that was handled. The book is about relationships, and and it's really a, a core through line in in the narrative. Yeah, and Dave Parker, you had a great relationship with Doc Ellis, who is somebody who I think a lot of fans, especially young fans, mostly know of him for the story of him pitching a game under the influence of LSD. First, do you know if that actually did happen? But more importantly, can you share just how much more there is to Doc Ellis than just that? Well, Doc was a great guy. He uh, took me on the wing when I got to the professional ring. He became my big brother, kept me on the straight and narrow, even though he was kind of loose. But he took it upon himself to keep me right. He meant a lot to me. And Stardew was his mentor, and that filtered down to me, too. Doc uh, threw the the no-hitter on acid and really didn't know he was throwing a no-hitter until the seventh inning. And uh, then he kind of wore off on it, and he realized that, you know, I'm, I'm throwing a no-hitter. I could do this. And he ended up doing it. But uh, Doc was a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. Doc uh, would be loud and verbal, keep people at bay. He wouldn't let people in. And his way of keeping them away was being loud and verbal and kind of obnoxious. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, being a mentor, you know, of of he being a mentor, of Willie Stargell being a mentor to you. I learned in the book that you were very much a mentor to uh, Larry Demery, who is a pitcher that had an unfortunately short career. Yeah, he was a pitcher. He weighed about a, 170 pounds, had a about a 98-mile-an-hour fastball, and was mean as a snake. He uh, had a cup of coffee in the major leagues. 
from his ability that he displayed in his first year in the big leagues. But uh, Demery was like my little brother, and he hurt his arm, and they sent him out. I remember him getting released and hanging around the ballpark, sad, and been crying. And uh, I left the, the ball game to go and spend time with him. I don't even think I played that day. I went to spend time with Larry and nurture him. But uh, he had relationships like that throughout baseball, especially the Pirates. We were like a family. And Sergeant was head of the family, and I was Sergeant of Arms. Chuck Tanner was the ideal manager for the Pirates because uh, he uh, was the one that acted like a father and did real well doing so. Yeah, I, I think that a, a lot of listeners are familiar with the uh, the cocaine scandals that happened when you were playing. You were pretty open in the book about the partying that you and your teammates did, not just with drugs, but just going out for drinks after games. Do you feel that negatively impacted your performance at any time? No, you can't do anything unless you're healthy. I left Pittsburgh and dominated baseball for the first 10 years I played. I went to Cincinnati after leaving Pittsburgh and had better years in Cincinnati than I had in Pittsburgh. But I told everybody and everybody knew that I had four knee surgeries, ruptured thumbs. It was the fact that I was, wasn't healthy. I mean, you can't do things unless you're healthy. And they made the big mistake of letting Dave Park go. And I went and just dominated for another 10 years. Yeah, you make note in the book of uh, several trades that did and didn't happen. You were potentially going to be traded from the Pirates to the Mets for, I believe it was Joel Youngblood and, and Jim Kern. I think that was before the 82 season. The Mets turned that down, which is something that <laughs> that was a pretty big mistake on their part. Had that trade happened, what would it have been like for you to play in New York? It would have been wonderful. I would have been a big star. Because um, verbally, I was inclined to lead verbally, and physically, I was uh, an outstanding player. I, I think I should have tried a big market, but I was obligated to Stardew. Stardew had a subpar year, and Peterson wanted to get rid of him. Because when I was uh, under my contract, and I was negotiating the 78 deal to make me the first million dollar paid player. Yeah, it was crazy yeah, that, that basically the Pirates in, in that time, they knew based upon other things that, that I've been learning was that they felt like that, that 77 team should have gone somewhere, especially with having Gossage in the bullpen alongside to what, what they realized what they needed was a game stopping, game changing starting pitcher. And, you know, that was kind of what I had learned. You know, when Dave told me the story about them trying to move out Stargell, and I, I, I almost couldn't believe it. And then I actually went into, you know, what we had talked about earlier in the fact checking. I went into the archives of the Post Gazette and the Pittsburgh Press, and that there were interviews of Willie Stargell saying, you know, nobody's going to trade me. I mean, it was almost hidden in, in it wasn't in, um, in headlines or anything like that, but it was hidden in a couple of articles where Stargell's like, nobody's going to trade me. If they try to trade me, I'm going to res- you know, going to retire, which makes me believe that they were talking about it around this time that uh, that Dave is, is mentioning, uh, the uh, the 77 uh, offseason. I had told Peterson that uh, 
and Willie wasn't going to be there, I didn't want to be there. And uh, there was no way I was going to allow for them to trade. It was my team as of that time. And because uh, I won the band title in 77 and 78 in Stardew, and I had made an oath to each other that we're going to go to a World Series together. And we ended up doing that. Yeah, it is noted in the book that the Pirates once offered to trade Al Oliver and Larry Demery to the Padres for Dave Winfield. That would have been quite the deal. They would have had some big outfielders. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if that deal actually came close to happening or if it was just an idea thrown out there? It was thrown out there because uh, before Chuck made any moves, and he would always consult with Stardew and myself. And... Uh, I don't think anything was going down because uh, Chuck would have made men start to know. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what's interesting is that we, we reference the altercation in the book, the spring training altercation between Larry Demery and uh, Ed Kirkpatrick Spanky. And after that is when we really started to hear a lot of the, the Demery uh, trade rumors because he, he had a little bit of an uh, issue with Chuck Tanner at that point. So every time there was a, a, a trade, rumor it was either al oliver or demery or both of them at least you know that's what i had heard uh from some executives i had spoken with as well as what i was seeing in the uh, the newspapers and with, with dave when we were doing our research yes al oliver much like dave parker is a player who arguably should be in the hall of fame he's a phenomenal hitter 2800 plus he should be there I think that a very good argument could be made. Ellis Valentine was mentioned earlier. We were just talking about Dave Winfield. A passage in the book that stood out to me was an all-star game throwing contest, you know, with Parker, Winfield, Valentine, and Reggie Smith. Do you recall, Dave Jordan, who Dave Parker said had the best arm of the, the four? The strongest arm, I think, was the wording. I think strongest was Winfield, most accurate. Uh, no, strongest was Reggie Smith, and I think most accurate was uh, Valentine. And there was some of Winfield was precise, if I recall correctly. But each one of them had their own. That was the thing that, that why we referenced it. Each one of them had their own. They possessed a, a special quality to their, their throwing arm. Those were some great arms. Reggie Smith is actually the answer to one of my favorite baseball trivia questions, which is who started at second base on opening day for the Red Sox in 1967? <laughs> Reggie did not spend much time at second in his career, but uh, that one one game he did. Well, you know that, that's funny you bring that up because one of the one of the fun passages for me in the book is the beginning of the 1974 season, where Dave Parker was the Pirates' starting first baseman, and a lot of people don't know about that or, or recall it very much because the Pirates' uh, newspaper uh, industry or the Pittsburgh newspaper industry uh, was on strike at the time. There's not a tremendous archive of stories, Pittsburgh-based stories, of Dave Parker playing first base for those first five games in the 74 season. I was trying to take down Bob Robinson's job. <laughs> I was tired of sitting on the bench. So I uh, played in the first base. It was kind of weird. I was taking ground ball, and uh, the coach hit the ball to me, Don Leopard, and it took a bad hop and hit me in the eye. And, uh, I went out with Doc Ellis that night, and we go by this club, and he introduced me to this young lady, and uh, she said, well, what happened to your eye? I said, I got hit in the eye with a baseball, and uh, 
That's she funny. kissed me on the eye. I ended up being with her for five years. That's amazing. Yeah. Getting back to that ball throwing incident, Reggie Smith had the, the strongest arm. Winfield was probably third on that list. Valentine had a strong arm but no accuracy. And one player had it all, and that was me. <laughs> I could throw with velocity. I was accurate. I released the ball in one step. I uh, had all kinds of little tricks that I used as an outfield player. And uh, I thought that I was the best out there. And at the plate, you had a lot of power. I think that had you played at uh, PNC Park, you probably would have uh, hit the ball in the water more than a few times. Yeah, me and Stodger both. No, for sure. You mentioned Dave Parker, Phil Garner quite a lot in the book. You had uh, quite a relationship with him. You like to have a lot of fun with each other in the in the clubhouse. Yeah, when Phil came over and I heard what they had traded, traded him for, and uh, I would joke him all the time, and I said, six brothers for this, and uh, <laughs> I used to get on him every day, and he got back with me. He would tell me that I was through. I had played my my time in the major leagues, and he was like a clubhouse lawyer. And uh, we used to put on shows for people that come in just to see me and feel attack each other and each other's ability. But you mentioned earlier how good you were when you went back to to Cincinnati to play. You know, you won a World Series with the Pirates, and at the end of your career, you won one with the Oakland A's. I would have to assume, looking back, you're a little disappointed that you didn't get to win a World Series with the Reds. Well, the Reds had an opportunity to sign me, and they didn't. And I uh, went 14th round in the draft. So uh, playing at home was enough because uh, every young man want to play at home. If they got a major league team, he wants to be on that team. And I fulfilled my my dream when I left in 83 or 84. And uh, so that, that was feeling enough. I'm uh, in the Reds Hall of Fame. It was a thrill playing at home, and they gave me an opportunity to come and play in front of my parents in the latter years. So I, I owe a lot to the Red. And you got an opportunity there to play with uh, hometown hero Pete Rose, who who is not in the Hall of Fame, but depending on how you view baseball, probably as the all-time hits leader should be in the Hall. I don't know if you want to share any thoughts on that. He should be in the Hall. I mean, the man's a hit king. He played the game the way it should be played. They uh, should give a video to all kids under 10 and under 13, rather, and uh, learn how to play off of that tape. Because Pete played the game and the way it should be played. And uh, through his hits and achievements, he should be in the Hall of Fame, as I should be in the Hall of Fame. And all of us should be in the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame is too political. I mean, it's, it makes it tough to. To sit by and every year the Hall of Fame voting come by and you sit at home knowing that you're one of the best players ever to play and the phone never rings. No, definitely politics. And and we are running short on time, but the mention of Pete Rose, you know, being an example of how people should play, it should be pointed out that Dave Parker played as hard as, as anybody you know, on bad knees. You were out on the field a lot of times where maybe a lot of people would not be. 
Yeah, I felt an obligation to my teammates and to the organization and to my fans. You know, that meant a lot to me. And uh, one thing they said about Dave Parker, he always played hard. And uh, that's just one less thing that they have to criticize you on. And that's what I tell young players. You know, always apply yourself. You never know who watches. Right. And there are about 100 more things that I would ask if, if we had time, but we don't. I do want to jump over to Dave Jordan with the Cobra playlist for people who have not seen that. Yeah, it was something we, we published in the uh, the Hardball Times published, I believe it was January 2019, uh, on, the, on the verge of us uh, receiving our book deal. And basically, on, on the back of that, we received a phone call from the producers of, at the MLB Network. They loved it, and they were throwing around the idea for a Dave Parker documentary, and they asked for my, for my help. Now, obviously, Major League Baseball is two phone calls away from every person who ever played the game. So there's no leverage involved. There's no, well, we're going to need a payment of some sort. It's how can I help you? It's here are some extra story angles you can use. Like I spoke to them about the comparisons in the 78 offseason between Pete Rose's signing and how that affected Dave Parker, which appeared in, in the documentary. They ended up interviewing me for like two hours at the studios. So they really incorporated me into the whole process. And um, and Dave was very excited to tell his story. That's why you don't you don't see a whole lot in Cobra about Parkinson's because the producers of uh, Cobra and Twilight did such an amazing job illustrating uh, Dave's everyday life and his fight with Parkinson's. So um, we didn't want to double up efforts. But I will say that once they had approached us, I was a little bittersweet because I had seen the uh, the Johnny Bench documentary that they produced, which was spectacular. And I had, I had some deep concerns about that. I was like, you know, what are we going to do? Write a 250 page book report of, of the documentary. So I was, a, I was a little downtrodden, to be honest with you, after they approached us. But then I, I received a phone call from the late Tom Rich, who I'd been working with, um, you know, in, in fact checking and researching for Parker's book. And I kind of explained to him, i.e. I was whining about, you know, everything that was going on. And the old man was just like, stop your bleeping whining, buy a plane ticket come down to Sarasota, spend the week with me, we'll figure this out. Like the good agent that he was and the good fixer that he was, I went down, I spent a week with him in Sarasota, we sat on the beach, we drank a ton of margaritas, and we ironed out in my head what my issues were with um, you know, with the documentary and that all my, my worries were, were silly. And once I got home, I got a, received a phone call from Parker and he basically just said, what's up? And I knew right then and there it was time to write the book and, and to help him get this thing done. So that was kind of where things began. But yeah, fan graphs and, and, and by, by extension, the Hardball Times had a lot to do with, um, with Cobra and it really, at the very least, getting the exposure for it. And I, I had to thank Meg Rowley, uh, who has kind of a tuning fork for such things. And she really helped out in, in supporting this in its earliest of stages. And of course, the Cobra playlist that ran at the Hardball Times is literally a playlist. Music is mentioned a lot throughout Cobra. So uh, Dave Parker, let me put you on the spot and ask you what the greatest song of your era that you referenced in the book and put on the playlist is. Slash Stone should be because uh, that was right during uh, my high school year, my senior year. And uh, Sly Stone was definitely one of the guys. Frankie Beverly and Mays, outstanding. We got a, a ton of people on the list. I could be here all day. 
Yeah, they don't uh they don't make music like they used to. No, they don't. They also do not make any more Dave Parkers. I think it's fair to say that Dave, you were you were one of a kind and I very much appreciate you coming on to Defangrass Audio and thank you also to uh Dave Jordan. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And thanks for uh, coordinating this. Thanks for inviting me and having no, great to have both of you on. I could not recommend the book any more strongly. It's a fantastic read. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. We had a little bit of chicken fried. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, Fangraphs Audio segment, uh, I'm Eric Longenhagen with Keith Law, the the musically inclined Keith Law, <laughs> who's been uh, Mark Marining our way into the intro of this segment. How's it going, Keith? I'm here to promote my new album. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad that we can, we can talk about that. What was that like? It was, you refused any help from anybody else. You recorded all three parts. You wrote When Doves Cry Overnight, right? This is, yes. uh... Dropping the bass line was a really tough decision because I really worked hard on that part. I liked what I'd written, but it just, it didn't, it didn't work, man. Is that true about that song that there was, that he wrote it overnight or whatever? There are like all sorts of print stories that now are... It's the story I've heard and that there was a bass line. No matter what he did, he decided it actually didn't work with the rest of the song. And so that song has no, no bass guitar, no bass line you know, which is funny until you, I mean, I never, until someone said that, until I heard that, it never occurred to me. Then I went back and listened. I was like, oh, yeah, there's like no bottom. Which is odd for a Prince song. Very. How long have you been playing music? When I do hear you, you play guitar, it's like, oh, this guy's gotten markedly better over the course of the time that I've listened to this dude play <laughs> the guitar. When did you pick, pick up a guitar first? First time ever, I was in second grade so that would make me what eight seven seven or eight yeah took lessons for a couple of years hated it because it was typical like here's a piece of like classical music here's right. green sleeves and i was like no i want to play what's on the radio like, i don't want to play that crap so <laughs> after a couple of years and it was clear like i wasn't even practicing and stuff and like you know my parents and i sort of jointly decided that this was a waste of time and money and then maybe about two years after that, it was summer after ninth grade in high school, I said, what I really want is an electric guitar because I want to play what's on the radio. And so they got me one at Sam Ash on Long Island, a very small, like a simple guitar, a very small little PV amplifier. And I started taking lessons with someone who actually taught me how to play the basics of rock guitar. And I practiced all the time. My daughter now wants to learn guitar and she has a guitar and she messes around a little bit. And she's like, well, I want to be as good as you. I said, first of all, I am 48. I have a reasonable head start on you. And second is when I was your age, I practiced all the time. I was just constantly messing around. Like the time that you spend on TikTok, not exaggerating, definitely the time that she spends on TikTok. Just take that. I was just practicing guitar. Right. So. Yeah, this this is uh, – and I have a similar musical trajectory as, as you, except it was mm. piano lessons. Ah, yes. And there was me like, you know – not wanting to practice, there was definitely a frustration in how slow it was it was taking me to to be any good. Oh, yeah. And then this is verbatim. This is one of those things. I was probably in fifth grade. I don't know why I retained this, but at some point, one of my parents was like, "You know, Billy Joel has said that when other kids were outside playing baseball, that he was inside practicing piano. Like, don't mm -hmm. you want to be that good?" And it's just like, well, what are the chances of me <laughs> being that good? 
Like I can't write scenes from an Italian restaurant. Like you're basically advocating for me to be isolated socially from like other kids my age. Right. And now at the time I did not respond in that manner, but like, I think it says a lot about <laughs> how I've ended up like working the way I do, which is like, yeah, the other kids are outside playing baseball and like you're doing your baseball Billy Joel thing, you know? But yeah, that's the other interesting thing is, is yeah, like TikTok and, and any, we're all easily distracted by whatever a different version of oh, yeah. TikTok is, right? Like, Oh, I find TikTok extremely distracting. If she sends me something and then I open it and then I'm like, oh, what's next? Oh, what's next? Wait, what the hell am I doing? What does your TikTok algo think you want to see? Mine was police dancing and then like <laughs> girls that are shockingly young. Like it was my yeah. cousins, my young cousins who are in their early 20s screw up my social media algorithms in, sure. in horrific ways. Yes. Fortunately, my daughter doesn't send me like those dances. So it's more, I mean, mostly she sends me stuff about cats or stuff that she just generally finds funny. I only follow something like six accounts on there, but I, it delivers me a lot of stuff that is very pro-science, pro-vaccine, pro-science, you know, anti-misinformation stuff. And anybody who's mocking the English language, because I happen to follow two accounts that do some of that stuff. And so, of course, it's, you know, when you only follow a few accounts, it really messes with the algorithm. And it's like, well, you obviously only like two things. So I'm just going to give you all of those two things. So I suppose this is the problem, right? If you follow like some pseudoscience loon or a white nationalist, it's just going to feed you those until you sure. overdose. Yeah. It's funny that TikTok has pro-science stuff, sort of ironic. Oh, some good, some very good, like I give these people credit. Like these are people who they're just, you know, obviously they have real jobs, unlike I think a lot of the pseudoscience people, and take time out to combat misinformation. There's one, it's Psy Time with Tracy, and she does these, you know, side by side, she'll get someone else who's spreading misinformation. And it's like real time. You, She's filming herself as she's listening. And she's like, no, that's not right. No, that's not right. Oh, that's definitely not right. Oh, that's actually science explanation. Oh, yeah, that's actually correct. No, not for that reason. It's no, well, good, highly it entertaining because it's at, it's at game speed, right? It is sure. perfect for if you have the short attention span to which TikTok caters. She's perfect for that. Do you think it just caters to it or do you think it is accentuating it? Uh, yeah, all of the above, right? It's the rat with the cocaine, right? The experiment with a rat will just keep hitting the thing. Give me more oh, coke. That's right, Give me more coke. coke, right? And then it dies of starvation. So we glossed over it very quickly. Do you think there's a difference in like the ceiling on guitar playing, like self-taught guitar playing like now compared to 15 plus years ago? Like my dad and my uncles would sit around a record player listening to, for my dad, it was like Genesis and Russian stuff. Mm. And then you're trying to teach yourself how to play that stuff. <laughs> I didn't ask for it. Just so people listening are aware. This is totally voluntary on Keith's part. Harder to yep. play on an acoustic. But anyway. Alex saying, Lifeson, right? That's the guitar player the, from Rush. Uh, he's amazing. He is truly, truly amazing. Yes. I like Eddie Lee's amps that look like washing machines. Anyway. Yes. Huge baseball fan, by the way. Huge, huge Blue Jays fan. I grew up, there were guitar tabs for me online. Yes. And so it was just like the way by which I had to learn the stuff I wanted to play was like, it was almost like learning directions on your own versus having a GPS in your pocket your whole life, which is yeah. also true for me. I mean, yes. Not only, so I'm, obviously I'm older than you. Yeah. 86 would have been when I first started learning guitar. And at that Sam Ash, I saw magazines with tablature, guitar for the practicing musician, which I think doesn't even exist anymore. 
but Slash and Duff McKagan were on the cover. I probably still have that issue somewhere in the house. And it had Welcome to the Jungle, the tab for Welcome to the Jungle. And I was like, well, I want to learn how to play that. Sure. And, you know, not realizing that a fair amount of what goes on in that song is actually done through effects. But there was stuff I could learn. And I had to learn how to read tablature first and foremost. And then it was like, I can do a reasonable facsimile of this. And that kind of got me started on just buying te- buying magazines, right? Keep Every time we'd go to Walden Books at the mall and I would be looking at the magazines. All right, what songs do they have this month? Then I go to college and I am pre-web, but there were Usenet groups like alt.guitar.tab where people would just by themselves create the tablature and might have errors, but it could at least get you started. Yeah, you I get could, close. Right? And I could often figure out, well, that's not right. It doesn't yeah, sound right. Or especially if you're playing alongside it. Right. But anyway, so around, so my daughter was born in 2006. My ex-wife was never a huge fan of me playing guitar in the house, apartment, whatever. And then once my daughter was born, I just kind of put it away for like a decade. And then it was really only once my first wife and I split up that I was like, I really miss playing guitar. I liked doing that. And so took it out a lot more. And so I've been playing like regularly since. And my wife now really loves it. My stepdaughters always get excited if I take the guitar out. The youngest wants me to play the, um, oh my God, what is it called? The 12 Little Ladybugs? Don't know that the one. The Ladybug Picnic. The Ladybug Picnic from Sesame Street. <laughs> they talked about the high price of furniture and rugs and fire insurance for ladybugs. Ladybugs 12 at the Ladybug Picnic. Yeah, she's a big fan of that. <laughs> Which is a step up from Baby Shark. The tablature for all of which is online. So that's where I was actually going with this. This was a long explanation, a long path to point out that now there are enormous repositories of tablature online and very often videos of people playing them. And same thing. They don't have to be playing them perfectly. But if they're playing them reasonably well, then I can follow along and figure out maybe by ear where there's like a note off or a chord that happens to be off. Do you think that there's a similar sort of cap, like there's a similar dynamic at play in terms of player evaluation when we have the aid all of a sudden of mountains and mountains of data versus Mm -hmm. like, all right, here, just go watch baseball over the course of several decades and try to sharpen your sword through that. Like, do you think the person who, like the ceiling on the individual who's, who's doing the player evaluation is, is greater in the days of yore where like you're just, sink or swim on your own and and some people are going to be become excellent at that and others are going to be perpetually flawed yes i think it's a really great way to put it there will be a f- always be a few people who kind of break through but the majority of people if you hand amateur guitarists who've never taken a lesson a giant stack of tablature uh, you know i still think in terms of magazines you know links bunch of links to their favorite songs even to easy songs the majority of them will not end up decent guitar players you know, because either they need the help of a little instruction just at the very beginning, which I think is kind of the most crucial step, or because they don't necessarily have the ear or because they don't put enough time into it, or maybe all of the above. And I think that's probably true with the amount of data that is available online. A lot of people can look at it and think, well, I can do this. I I can figure this out. I can write about players. I can scout players. And it's not, no, the vast majority won't and can't. And they can often cover it up, I think, by using the right terminology. But at the end of the day, they are just, their ceiling is very limited. I think that's a perfect way to put it. There's only so far you can go without having not just the knowledge of years of doing it, but the advantage of having people who have been doing it for years work with you, teach you, tell you when you're wrong. That to me is the most valuable thing is when someone says, 
you're yeah. wrong about this player. And here's why. Here's why I disagree. People rarely say you're just wrong, but it's more like, oh, I disagree. And here's why. So we're sitting here. It's, it's September 15th. The minor league season is coming to a weird sort of end. Most of the leagues will be done playing like within a few days of people hearing this episode. And, and yet AAA continues on for two weeks after that. Instructionally here in Arizona for a few of the teams will actually begin before AAA ball has totally concluded, which is, which is bizarre. Yes. Is there, is there anything? I've sort of lost track of what changes to the schedule are more permanent and what of them are a result of, you know, COVID still being around. What are some of the odd things that, you know, have in terms of like the pace of year 2021 and the schedule for year 2021 that have been beneficial or perhaps detrimental to the way, you know, or just hard to adjust to adjust to in terms of the process that you've uh, refined for yourself over the course of doing this for a couple decades now? I don't know if you've had the same experience. To me, it's been, honestly, it's been all downside this year. And I'm hopeful that a lot of it is just, it's, you know, this year was still impacted by COVID with the late start, with a lot of players missing time, with everybody who missed time last year, et cetera. So I'm not trying to be a doomsayer here, but it's it's been worse this year. And the number one thing I've noticed, I think this is more about my early contraction than it is about the pandemic, but that the quality of play in full season baseball is just worse across the board. And I feel like it is, AAA is a little lower than it used to be. And AA is like what high A used to be. And high A is like mediocre low A ball. And low A ball, I'm like, what the, can I curse on this podcast? Is that okay? Yeah, it'll get bleeped. Okay. It's like, what the actual f*** am I watching here? Yeah. Like, it is like, it is truly shot. And that's true when I'm at the ballpark. It's true when I watch online too. The majority of what I've seen this year has been high A. And there's a range. There are certainly great players in high A. I saw Grayson Rodriguez in high A earlier this year. I've seen Anthony Volpe in high A. I went to see Nick York just last night in high A. So it's not that the prospects aren't there, but it is that the range of players and the overall caliber of play is just worse. And I think that's largely the result of the elimination of short season, meaning guys are getting pushed up into full season ball faster than they would have. It's also possible that this is a just a hangover from the lost 2020 and that things will start to right themselves next season. I hope that's the case. The dynamic you describe at low A especially is it was immediately clear to people who were like going out and seeing the old Cal League teams in like April and May that the group that was there is the group that would have in a typical year been left back in extended spring training and then sent to short season ball in the middle of the summer. And then that Mm -hmm. would have been, you know, the Penn league guys and the Northwest league guys and the pioneer league group. They would have all had a couple months of instruction in a development, like prioritized environment and then gone and played like actual baseball with, no safety net beneath them. Like you're not rolling innings later in the summer. And that's just, there's just, it's more forgiving during the late spring and early summer to like be on a backfield. If something goes awry with, you know, a pitcher's just totally lost the zone, which is just more apt to happen to guys this young, like you can just roll the inning and move on. Mm -hmm. And you just can't do that when you've sent that guy to low A in April or May, instead of them being on the backfield. And yeah, like, the quality of play, especially at the lower levels, was definitely impacted by contraction, it would seem. And then the other thing that I think we don't know yet is you mentioned the year off last year, basically. Like, I don't know if I've 
experience the higher rate of injury. Uh, you know, I think that we, at the big league level, certainly teams seem to have dealt with that. Some of the teams like the Mets and, and the Rays, like you look at the injured list and it's as big as just a fully active pitching staff. Like I think at one point the Rays just had like 12 pitchers on the IL and some teams have been better at dealing with it and were more prepared to deal with it than others, which is why, you know, like the Rays are still going to win one of the more competitive divisions in the entire sport. But yeah, so as we wrap up here, the season's going to end. You said you, you saw Nick York the other night. Who's Who are some of the guys, you know, who have blown you away this year? And who are some of the guys who were disappointing, you know, in that Northeast corridor that you call home? Let's see. Um, I know the open-ended prospect question is like the yeah, no, of both it's, of our it, existences. And I've seen a lot of guys, although I was off, you know, my readers of mine know I was kind of, I was home for a month while we had, uh, my wife had a breakthrough COVID case. Yeah. Little ones tested positive. Everyone's fine now. Everyone's recovered, but I was staying home for obvious reason. So it's like, it feels like my season was broken into two parts around that. It's funny. I went to my a, a wedding and was gone for five days and felt like I'd missed a month. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. It is the weirdest feeling, especially, I don't know why. I don't know why it feels that way this year. Maybe I just never quite got back into the rhythm of of going to games regularly. But I saw, I saw Anthony Volpe a couple of weeks ago, completely understand why he is, you know, why I was completely wrong on him. I think a lot of folks were wrong on, not just what I found really interesting about him. It wasn't just like Nick York. Nobody saw Nick York, right? It was a pandemic year. He was hurt. The Red Sox had just had more looks at him prior to the injury, and I believe they had somebody who saw him working out on the side more than other clubs, just they didn't have the same access. And so far, it looks like they were right. Uh, of course, I saw Nick York punch out three times in a game, which I think is the first time he's ever done that. So it was <laughs> less than ideal. I didn't tell anyone I was coming. What the hell's going on? The observed photon of light. Exactly. It's Luis Robert all over again. All right. So Volpe, as a high schooler, was... Low ceiling, high floor, can really play shortstop and has feel for contact, but smaller guy, not likely to have big offensive ceiling, hard to project on the power in the traditional like body projection way. So maybe it's, you know, like a low variance 45 type of guy. Like he's, you know, not quite the defender Jose Iglesias is, but produces on that that level, like where mm-hmm. there's contact, but not a lot of power and he can really play shortstop. Now, I was talking to somebody at the field yesterday who says that their internal model has Anthony Volpe as like one of the top five in terms of like probability. This guy's going to hit. He's going to have impact. I can't believe how much power he's hitting for. Mm-hmm. Is that, you feel that's, Legit then, like what kind of what kind of offensive output based on what you've seen do you think we can expect here? Yeah, the two things so well what what I was rambling about there, the difference between Volpe and York, both guys that I'd rated kind of low going to the very low going to the draft, and I think generally people did. Like at least the outside, you know, those of us on the outside, and I think a lot of teams did, well, especially true of York. There were a few more teams in on Yeah, I killed the York pick. Yeah, everyone did. I think all of us did. I think Jim and Jim and Jonathan over at MLB did. I'm pretty sure Baseball America would had him outside their top 100. We all did. And a lot of that was, again, because nobody saw him. But the big difference there is York was just not seen and hurt. And he was a high school second baseman. He's still a second baseman. He will not be anything more than a second baseman. And that might be fine. Volpe, what really shocked me for a guy who was seen a lot is he's just got better tools. He ran way better for me. He is hitting the ball harder, and there is clearly more power in there than 
I think anybody, well, most folks believed. Give the, give the Yankees credit. They took him in the first round. They believed. And I know they believed in the makeup. They're huge on that, especially when taking high school players. But they clearly saw, they saw the tools that were actually there. And I think a lot of the rest of us underrated the actual, just the pure physical tools. Then on top of that, obviously, he's a really smart player and he has a better idea of the strike zone and he's got better ability to put the bat on the ball. But you can you can miss on those things and say, okay, well, you know, that's just the hazard of evaluating high school hitters, particularly from a cold weather area. He's a Jersey right. kid. For folks who don't know, he was on Jack Leiter's high school team. And so to go and see Volpe this year and be like, oh, that's just a different human being. As opposed to York, where, yes, I saw him punch out three times. And it was not pretty. But also I could see him be like, yeah, it's a good swing. And when I look at what he's done so far this year, and he doesn't actually strike out that much. and He's got a good eye. And it's good quality contact. The one hit he had was like, yep, that's what it's supposed to look like. I get it. You know, I wish I'd seen more. But to me, there's there's such a difference in where, at least I'll say where I went wrong. I don't want to blame anybody but myself on this. But where I went wrong on those two guys those were two very different paths to guys who are both top 100 prospects for me. I would say Volpe, I think there's a good bit more ceiling because he is a better athlete, faster, going to probably play shortstop for a long time. I don't know if I'd go as far as your top five. What was that? Top five hitting prospect or something? And this is according to the team's model. Model, Like right, just their yes. statistical model that's factoring in quality of contact and stuff like, and you know, defensive home and age at level of performance like... Yeah, this is – it was purely the model that, that the scout was was telling me about. But yeah, York – had Boston given him like 1, 1.2, I would have been like, yeah, sure. That's – this hit tool-oriented high school pick is becoming more in vogue. Again, there's just more data being collected, whether it's track me and stuff or just metadata related to like swinging strikes. There's so much video being collected and being broken down on a pitch-by-pitch -pitch basis. And it's pervasive enough at this point that like I have access to some of it. Like I've just, we just allocated travel budget to having access to some of this like video backlog from like, you know, the players pre-draft summers, basically. I can go watch Cape League baseball that's broken down pitch by pitch. I can watch all of Jace Young's at bats. I can watch all of his swings against like fastballs 95 and above if I want to. Like, I can break it down by that. And Nick York is absolutely that type of guy who as a high schooler, like James Triantos with the Cubs is this type of guy mm -hmm. where he had like, this is, you know, my BS metric that I came up with just from like combing through video. If balls in play to swings and misses, James Triantos had like an 11 to one ratio. Like hitters right. who have a one to one ratio are pretty okay. And like this guy had an 11 to one ratio before he had reclassified. He was going to be a 2022. And during last summer, he did this. And like Nick York was in the same bucket where you look at him and you're like, eh, this doesn't really look like a big league athlete. He definitely can't play shortstop. I don't know what this guy's body is going to look like when he's 22, which I think for York is still kind of the case and like where he ends up on the def defensive spectrum. But like sometimes these guys just become DJ LeMayhew. And I don't know, there are times where I feel like we've overcorrected on this type of player as a public facing, you know, micro industry basically. And, you know, when to choose to believe in Xavier Edwards or Nick Madrigal or Nicky Lopez, like, it's hard to know because there are definitely players like Jose Devers with Miami and who's another, Tucapita Marcano, mm -hmm. where I'm just like, no, you know, like, I get it. I'm sensitive to us having missed on this type of player in the past, but I still look at these guys and I 
see like, no, too frail still. I don't see these guys developing big league physicality because when you go watch big leaguers, it is like, wow, look at this guy. The way that the big league athlete looks in the uniform is very often notable. Like it is striking to see these guys up close. Like they are special physically. And the way you're describing Volpe, and certainly I think York is kind of getting there. It sounds like he has made that leap, which yeah, totally unexpected based on having seen a ton of Volpe in high school and not not as much of York, but like York was at area codes. I saw Nick York mm-hmm. and you know, his name was circled on the area code roster, but it wasn't like he was stuffed good on my pre-draft list or anything like that. It, it, he was just one of these at the time, West Coast bats with a lot of underlying data that at the time I had no access to and very little appreciation for. And that has sort of shifted a little bit. Let's talk about another guy who Mm -hmm. he's not even on the board at our site yet because I like have had to have my come to Jesus moment on this guy. It was a type (laughs) of player who, when I put him on the board, like I want it to be where he just belongs and that'll be it. Like I don't want to gut you know, shoot from the hip, put him somewhere and have it be wrong uh, and then move him two months later when I do the team list here. And that's Ellie De La Cruz with the Reds. Mm-hmm. Ellie De La Cruz was here in Arizona for extended spring training. The Reds did not permit outside access to their facility for uh, COVID-related reasons. Their their backfield is very confined. A lot of the time when you're there and sitting in the bleachers like behind home plate, they're little... They've got like five rows of metal bleachers back there. Them and and Cleveland both like have very limited space. And so this was one where I wouldn't complain about it to anyone or publicly. Like if you're on their backfields, like you're just rubbing elbows with their players and they don't want them to get COVID. (laughs) Uh, Because especially (laughs) during extended, you know, a lot of the kids from the DR, they're coming here. They aren't of age to be vaccinated and haven't even, even if they are, haven't had the opportunity to do so yet. So like, I totally understood this. So like I whiffed on, I didn't see the Reds at all during extended. And then De La Cruz had a very short 11 game stretch in the AZL here. Or excuse me. It's the ACL now. I'll never get used to that. It's the AZL. I refuse to, especially the one in Florida, especially that's the Gulf Coast League. Stop it. If you go to the MILB site, have you noticed this? Like if the URLs are still all the old league names. I know. Double A Northeast is actually still the Eastern League in the URL and on the scoreboard and what I'm not playing along. And I'm just, every time I write about the one in Florida, that's just the Florida Man League. If you're going to make me change the name, I'm going to make fun of the league and the state all at once. And I want to talk about this too, because when it comes to like the area codes and the AZL and like fall league and stuff. There are moments in my internal monologue where I'm like, why don't they talk to me about how to make this the best that they can? And it's totally conceited and ridiculous, but Ellie De La Cruz. So Ellie De La Cruz goes after 11 games of absolutely annihilating complex level pitching here in Arizona, goes to full season ball and he continues to crush it. He's hitting 267, 296 OBP is low, but with like a 490 slug, it's an O'Neill Cruz starter kit where it's like, Big 6'4", super projectable switch hitter, crazy power, 70 or 80 grade arm, even at his size has a chance to stay at at the very least on the dirt, if not stay at shortstop. Like it's it's not a totally unheard of profile because like O'Neill Cruz exists, but it's definitely bizarre and alien-like. I think that this guy having, I've sourced on him over the last couple of days because I think I want to make one last like low-hanging fruit update to the 100 where like Nick York probably goes on. Volpe moves yeah. up. Yep. 
And this guy, I think, is going to get stuck on there too, despite the fact that, look, it's a 3% walk rate right now over 190 plate appearances in a ball. That's a big red flag. Mm -hmm. But I think I'm just going to stick him literally like right behind O'Neill Cruz on the 100 because they're so similar. This guy's just a couple levels below. Even the concerns are, are similar, but the ceiling on a guy like this seems big enough to stick him towards the back of the 100 with the other guys who it's if, you know, two years from now, if he told me it's just where Marcos Luciano is right now, like I'd say, okay, yes, like that makes sense. Yeah, you're ahead of me on him. I just think he's really toolsy. He's very projectable. His hands are super loose. But there's a lot of 19-year-old prospects who are like that, particularly those who've come out of the Dominican Republic, especially in his case, have missed a year, right? He's essentially like an 18-year-old. It's just not played a lot of well, you know highly organized baseball, unlike kids who've grown up elsewhere. And I just feel like, yeah, we see a lot of get God, the Reds have had a lot of guys kind of like this before. But if you can't tell a ball from a strike or can't recognize spin, some guys learn. I just wrote a whole thing on Austin Riley going from really bad at those things to pretty good at those things, actually. But in Cruz's case, he's got a long way to go to become adequate in those departments and to not be Jose Siri, who I know is in the right. big leagues now. How about Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Right. Jose Siri is just is, who is the other a great one? example of it, of what it looks like. Jorman Rodriguez? Uh, Suli Matias. Oh my God, yes. That freaking There are guy. lots of, yes. These are absolutely yeah. examples of players who you see them and you're like, holy crap, no 19-year-old Suli Matias in, in full season ball was putting up exit velos commensurate with like quad A guys. Oh, yeah. Dudes in their late 20s who are totally physically mature and are, you know, hitting the ball 90 plus miles an hour on average and still like could not do it. Miguel Andujar, even even guys who it worked with like in the big leagues for an amount of time, right? Miguel Andujar was electric for a couple of months there mm -hmm. and put himself in the AL Rookie of the Year conversation and like just can't, he can't even crack the big league roster anymore. Like his approach is so exploitable yep. that, yeah. So I would disagree on De La Cruz. You know, you said there are a lot of Dominican kids like this. And mm -hmm. from a tools and body projection standpoint, no, there are not a lot of other guys like this. Okay, that's fair. But there are definitely a lot of guys over the course of, you know, the a little over half a decade I've been doing this as my full-time job and the 13 years I've been in baseball in some capacity who were this exciting and then still ended up busting. Mm -hmm. It's just about how you weigh the risk with the ceiling. And for me, it's like somewhere in somewhere close to 100 overall is where I'm comfortable like ballparking these guys because this the ceiling, if they do end up doing it, and some of them do, mm -hmm. is like a top 25 global prospect and a three plus war annual player. So I think sure. that the, the talent for that is here. But yeah, like if you like Matt McLean more, which you do, yep. just because it's like, look, in two years, which of these guys is going to be in the big leagues? Probably Matt McLean. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, just like, it's amazing to sit and look at big league rosters and just go, you know, it just turns out that like Cesar Hernandez is good. Like to have Cesar Hernandez's career would be great for a lot of what we hope for some of these, some of these guys who um, we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Anybody else, if I'm making a low-hanging fruit update to the 100 who has had a, a great season overall that I'm that I'm missing here? God, I don't know. I haven't sat down you, to think. You updated yours. I, updated, I did a 50. Oh, you did a 50. That's right. 
I have always tried, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's just my personal philosophy has always been the off-season 100 is kind of a sacred thing where it is a weeks-long process of you know research, analysis, video, all of the above, right? That list, and that list is enormous. It's a huge package. That's been true ever since I was at ESPN. A huge package. That will be on your tombstone. Yes. <laughs> Well, you know, I got vaccinated, so I got now. I got a now. I got a huge one. Uh, imagine waking up and finding out Nicki Minaj just told twenty three million people about your swollen scrotum stuff. <laughs> That's her next album title, exactly. Anyway, so Swollen's like cool. Volpe was the one on the top fifty. I think most people kind of reacted to like, oh, oh, yeah. Not only one. Keith changed his mind on this guy, admitted I was wrong, but also like, hey, he's really good. Like this guy is very legit. You know, I think a lot of people were sort of surprised not to see Kate Cavalli on mine, but it's top 100 stuff. He wouldn't be, didn't make my top 50 because I think the command's got a pretty long way to go. And I'm not sure that he's that type of guy to get there. Yeah. He pitches in the big leagues, clearly. Like I think you roll him out in eighth, ninth inning guy and he's great, but- you know, we're just trying to create some separation between the tiers. But what I haven't, that's a long, uh, you know, sort of, again, a long way of saying, I haven't really thought about who'd be at the back of a hundred. Because the last time I went through a process, I was just thinking in terms of 50. And I do think they'll probably, I feel like we've lost a lot of guys from the list to graduations. You know what? I'll throw one at you. Here's one. I think he's a top 100 guy. I'm not sure. But Brandon Walter, lefty in the Red Sox system. And it's just funny. I'm like, so he's a Delaware kid. He went to high school in Delaware. He went to the University of Delaware. For folks who don't know, I live in Delaware. I'd never heard of this kid before this year. He was a 30th round pick. I think he signed for a thousand bucks. And, you know, misses the year, works, obviously, comes back this year. He's hitting 97 regularly with a much improved breaking ball. And he's like a top two or three pitching prospect in that system. With the emergence of Jay Groom in the second half this year, it's like, hey, Red Sox might have some pitching coming for the first time in forever. But there's actually some pitching there. And Walter is like, because he's big and left-handed and throws hard and has had results, those guys probably should, even if he's, you know, doesn't have pedigree, right? Being a 30th rounder out of a minor, you know, not I hesitate to even call it a mid-major school, but he's getting it done with real stuff. Those guys are, I'm always on the lookout for those guys because I think I have a little tendency to underrate them because of you know, what I already think I know about them. Or in this case, the fact that I didn't know anything. Know anything, right. right. Yeah, it's... This is another uh, money quote from the scout I was standing next to at last night's complex level game. Mm-hmm. He said, we understand pitching as well as ever because of how individualistic it is and all the data, but also understand them like we're worse at scouting them basically because of how quickly they can change. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Brandon Walter in 2019 was sitting in the upper 80s <laughs> and mm-hmm. then the world went dark for a year. And he came back into 2021, and now, yeah, he's sitting in the mid-90s. And, like, his release point is lower. He's changed his delivery. The fact that – here's another one. It's like the lower release point means less backspin on your fastball, but also you've altered the approach angle of the fastball, which maybe matters even more than, like, your spin axis in terms of working your fastball past dudes at the letters. So, like, even though he lowered his arm slot, he didn't detract from – his fastball utility in any way and probably, like you said, like added two-plane movement on his slider from dropping his arm angle. Mm-hmm. And now like that's a legit out pitch. And now, yeah, we're looking at – he's a lefty with mid-90s stuff in a slider. I've 
a multi-inning relief grade on him just because of his delivery is like very atypical for a starter. I still think that when you look across baseball as a whole, the starters have a look to them mechanically that that this guy does not. But Mm -hmm. in terms of valuing pitching, I'll just stick a guy like this. Yeah. Like towards the back of the hundred, like Aaron Ashby with Milwaukee, Matt Cantorino with Minnesota, their relievery is all get out both of them, but three or four plus pitches on each of them. I kind of don't care. Like I'll just take that guy. Even if I know he's going to be in the bullpen, the same as I would, you know, some of the other dudes in the in the back of the fifty future values here. I think that's a great that's a great name is uh, Brandon Walter. All right, we're at the we're approaching the forty minute mark, uh, so we're gonna wrap things up here. Are you coming to coming to fall league or doing instructs or anything like that? Fall league week one. What is that? October thirteenth, I think. That's my yeah, plan. I think there's no schedule released for it yet. Again, no, like, I know. Just a date, right? It's presumptuous of me to be like, why doesn't anyone talk to me about how they can optimize this stuff? But like, that's ridiculous. But yeah, like, hey, fall league schedule at this point would be nice. Yeah. I mean, the reality is I'm coming, like, what day are they playing games? Okay, I'll, I'll just be there. Oh, here's it, it is, October 13th. I, I would be nice to know if there's a day game or an afternoon or an e- or only an evening. Like, that would be good just for travel, right? Because the last time they changed when they were doing day games, and it used to be so easy, right? Two games in the afternoon, one game at night. Six days a week. Right. Right? And that was the easiest. And it didn't matter. You just you just book your flights. I'll figure out where I'm going when I get there. I don't care. And I actually was talking to Emma Spann, my editor, who I, knew, I know you know very well. And we were just talking about travel, and I'm not, I'm not doing much the rest of the year. But that was one. I said, I'm just going to go the first week, and whoever I see, it's a bonus. Right? We didn't have it last year. And I've seen fewer guys this year for lots of reasons. So whoever I see out there, I'm just going to be grateful for it. Well, we might want to huddle after this. Uh, I'll send you the instruct schedules that I have for Arizona. Please. Because they ramp up immediately. Like the Mm -hmm. AZL ends this weekend on Saturday. And then on Tuesday, the Cubs and the A's just start. They roll right into their instructs. And then a couple days later, the rest of the East Valley clubs who are doing it do as well. So I think that getting you out here maybe a couple days early is is the move if you want to hit the the tail end of of instructs. Are there any fall? Do you have any like logical fall league guys or maybe even any names who you've heard might come? Nothing I've heard. I've actually asked some clubs and they've been either they don't know or they just don't want to say anything yet. And so I mean they must have some some guys have some idea. Yeah, I yeah, wonder if like, they've just been told not to say too much publicly. There are some dudes who it makes sense, right? Like it would be logical for Mackenzie Gore to go just because yeah. he hasn't thrown. Like it's just guys who have been hurt and are now healthy. Or, you know, Mackenzie Gore wasn't really hurt, but was working on stuff. So like Jackson yes, Rutledge. And is still working on stuff, right? So yeah, Jackson right. Rutledge would be perfect. Cole Henry, maybe. Mm. Pedro Leon. Yep, that would be a good one. He just, I think he's just rehabbing now, and yes, Houston's correct. not doing a traditional instructional league. He was the one who jumped out at me because he's like, that guy has just missed so much time. And, you know, then he, the first month or so, maybe first two weeks or so, he went like one for 21 with 11 strikeouts to start his pro career this Even year. Even after he looked good during, he looked good during big league spring training and then was right. terrible for the first three weeks of his yes. yeah, minor So he finally gets crazy. rolling and then he gets hurt. There's yeah. lots of those. I think there are lots of those guys. So part of me wants to be optimistic. Like, Volley could be really good if, team, if those awesome. guys are healthy and teams are willing to send those guys. 
that would be yeah that would be tremendous to get a few of those guys i don't care which ones they are at this point i will be glad to like i said i'll be glad to see whoever it is and there's a lot of guys where we just haven't had injury updates for a while and you know some of those guys may just suddenly oh we you know so and so is out with bicep tendonitis for 3 months and he just shows up in fall yep. league okay sure yeah. So folks listening to this, I know the COVID variable is a relevant one, but it's pretty easy to distance at fall league games. Here in Arizona, the COVID stuff is okay. It's not like Floridian in our ineptitude, mm-hmm. but like, you know, when I go to the grocery store, it's 50-50 people masking as they, you know, smell produce and stuff. So, <laughs> so you know, like some of us are dummies here in Arizona. And so, you know, weigh that as you consider coming here, but. You're including the governor in that, right? I don't know, man. Like, I don't know if the guy who's CEO of Coldstone Creamery should like become a governor. So I don't know. <laughs> Why would you say that? But yeah, so thanks for, for coming on, Keith. And I look forward to seeing you in a little under a month here in, in the desert. Yeah, I can't wait. We will get together. We will, I guess, what was our old place that closed? Oh, the Pig and Pickle. Pig and Pickle? Yes. Yeah. Let's find a new place. Yeah, we should. You live out there. This is on you. That's uh, that's fine. Uh, plug some stuff. What are, you, what are you working on? I actually am not currently working on a piece. There will be a scouting blog that catches up on. I saw, oh my God, what's his name? Randy Vasquez the other day. Oh, yeah. Yankees. Pre- He's really interesting. It's not super starterish. I did get a little Severino delivery vibe, but also Severino, you know, turned out to have really, really good stuff. And if Vasquez turns out to have that kind of stuff in a little more time, it'd be pretty good, actually. I think the Yankees would be very happy with that. So him, I saw Michael Tolley, I saw Oswaldo Peraza again, Nick York last night, some like very lower level prospects, like lower tier prospects for the Orioles who might have a chance, especially in a system like that, where if a guy just performs, you know, he's going to get opportunities. I probably won't do that till next week, especially because I'm trying to sneak in one more game or so before the season ends here. And then I'm going to Gen Con, actually, later this week. So I'm taking a couple of days off, actually going to a to a board gaming convention. All right, nerd. Well, yeah, yeah. I know you appreciate I don't want to hear it, Mr. Magic <laughs> Gathering. <laughs> Look, I'm going to sling some spells and still call you a nerd because I'm right. <laughs> I will do what I always do and send you pictures of rare. The expensive magic cards? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's selling for $800. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's a whole MTG finance community that's like sort of apart from the stuff I'm interested in. But anyway, <laughs> thanks to Keith Law for joining us on the podcast. You can read his work at The Athletic. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. I am lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. Thanks for listening to another episode of Fangraphs Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Big thank you to the Cobra Dave Parker and Dave Jordan and Keith Law for joining us. We encourage you to head over to DaveParker39Foundation.com if you are interested in the book or would like to help in their fight against Parkinson's disease. I also encourage you to subscribe to the Fangraphs.com newsletter. It is free to your inbox every weekday, and it offers a great summary of all the cool things going on at our website. Thank you for listening to the program. If you enjoyed it, consider sharing it with a friend. We'll be back with you next week. Have a good one.